0: Yesterday evening I mentioned that it was judgment day yesterday. And does that, was that really just uh, 24 hours ago or was it actually three days? <laughs> How many would say three days? Okay, uh, of lived experience, yeah. Um, so uh, there is apparently a bumper sticker that um, we were thinking of giving to everyone who completes the retreat. And the, jump, the bumper sticker says, non-judgment day is near. <laughs> I want to give a kind of uh, overview of the work of transforming the judgmental mind, talking about uh, really the nature of the judgmental mind, what it looks like, why it's important to work with and transform the judgmental mind, and in brief, how we do it. So a kind of an overview, both of the nature of the judgmental mind and how the transformation occurs. And I I was reflecting that in some ways we can talk about this practice that we do in a very uh, simple way, which is always helpful. Uh, That in one way of seeing what we're doing here is that we are uh, developing the capacity to be responsive rather than reactive to be able to be increasingly in the present moment and not be driven so much by our habits, by our tendencies, by our conditioning. And this opens up what we might call the space of freedom. Responsiveness is a very ordinary way of talking about freedom, meaning that we're not reactive. And and there are different dimensions to this, this quality of being responsive. There's the dimension of awareness. Can I be aware of what's happening without that reactivity? And reactivity is a term that we use in a meditative context to refer to two main tendencies. One is to uh, compulsively, semi-consciously, or unconsciously push away what's happening in experience. And the other type of reactivity is the counterpart. It's to grab hold of experience. Again, compulsively, semi-consciously, unconsciously. And the third uh, support for the reactivity is often grouped with uh, the first form, which is sometimes called aversion, the pushing away, and the second form, which is sometimes called grasping or or greed, the, the grabbing hold. And that third form, or that third support, is typically called delusion. And as long as we are held by the aversion, by the grasping hold, and by the... Uh, delusion, we can't really be responsive. We can't really be free. And of course, what happens in that space of being driven by uh, the aversion, the grasping, and the delusion is that those are really the roots of suffering. Whether individual suffering or interpersonal suffering, suffering at the level of community, more collective suffering the suffering of violence and conflict and wars and our practice is really to continually to train to be responsive and the responsiveness has that quality of awareness to be able to be present which we train in in the mindfulness it also has the quality of an open heart It has a quality of kindness and warmth that we're also training in. And again, our training is to increasingly be able to bring qualities of awareness and qualities of kindness into all situations. Of course, we can do that more easily in some situations than others. And then I would say maybe the third quality of this responsiveness is understanding. We could call that wisdom. So we really train in a simple way to talk about the essence of our practices. We train in awareness, in kindness, and the open heart, and in wisdom. And we also, as a large part of our training, we see what gets in the way of the awareness being manifest, the kindness being manifest, and the wisdom being manifest. And as I mentioned last night, in a way we could see the entirety of our training as on the one hand, cultivating these beautiful qualities, and on the other hand, seeing what stands in the way. And one of the main forms of habitual energy that stands in the way is what we're calling the judgmental mind. It's quite a uh, force. And I think very much so in contemporary culture, particularly in terms of self-judgment. We don't seem to find self-judgment in the same way in other cultures before sort of modern Western culture. You find plenty of other issues and problems and you find judgment of others. Some of you may remember that uh, Jesus has these lines about judging others. Judge not lest ye be judged. Probably some of you studied that a long time ago. Judge not lest ye be judged. Why do you point to the plank in your brother's eye or the splinter in your brother's eye when all the time there's a plank in your own. Hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will be able to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. I can't give you the exact verse and chapter and so forth, but some of you may remember that. So you find judgment there, but you don't find this particularly self-judgment in the same way. In fact, many of the Asian teachers who first brought Buddhist practice to the West were very confused by the Western judgmental mind, particularly self-judgment. And I remember being at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts in the late 1970s, I think 1979, on one of the first trips of the Dalai Lama to the U.S., and it was wonderful, you know. Um, I didn't even have to go anywhere. I was, just, I was just doing a retreat and he happened to come to my retreat. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, there was a time for questions and someone asked a question. My memory is that they were on cards. Some, there just were some cards read. And someone asked the question, I don't think that I deserve love. Please comment. And the Dalai Lama was befuddled. Which is not usually what happens to Dalai Lamas. You know, he was, he, he actually, he speaks pretty good English, as, as probably many of you know. And he went back and forth to the translator, like for four or five minutes. Like, what does that mean? All in Tibetan. You know, he was going back and forth. And finally, he just blurted out, you're wrong. You deserve love. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) Very un-Dalai Lama-like. And he later said that he was very confused by this conditioning. And he heard many accounts of the conditioning from Western teachers. And he had that sort of first-hand encounter. And he said he studied that tendency in the Western mind for two years with the aid of psychologists to better understand what was going on. So it's this deep tendency that is one of the main forces that makes that quality of responsiveness uh, uh, difficult, I should say, makes it difficult. It's a very habitual force It can take us over. We can be in a kind of a cloud or a trance with the judgmental mind. And in a way, it comes very naturally out of human tendencies, right? It's very interesting, it comes very naturally out of tendencies, I want this, you know, I'm not getting it, or I don't want this, I'm getting it, or uh, I need this and you seem to be standing in the way of it, you know? it can be understood very much as uh, sort of a very uh, ordinary expression of maybe not having certain needs met. We get judgmental towards ourselves. I don't meet these needs for myself. I'm judgmental of myself. I don't meet needs of others. And we might ask, you know, what's really wrong with it? You know? Isn't it just about trying to get things Okay. And so we have to look carefully really to see why the judgmental mind is a problem because it's that quality of reactivity. And the reactivity will lead us to want something or not want something and just be unautomatic without necessarily having awareness, without having kindness, without having wisdom. And we're just unautomatic and we can create a lot of harm and we can be involved with different kinds of of conflicts. From the eighth century, this is uh, Shantideva, actually the Dalai Lama's favorite author. I think he keeps by his bedside a copy of Shantideva's book called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And some of you may have heard him teach on that text. Uh, This is Shantideva. A crazy, untamed elephant in this world cannot inflict such harm as the sufferings of the deepest hell caused by the rampaging elephant of the mind. Mm. So judgments can manifest that rampaging elephant at times. And I thought I'd just throw this in. This, uh, This is from Mark Twain. And he uses judgment in a little bit different sense than I'm using it, but I think this is good to have out there. Good judgment comes from experience. So he's using judgment in that more neutral sense, uh, meaning discernment. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> so let me review a little bit the the nature of judgments, give some examples, invite you to come up with your examples and, and even share some of them here. Um, so again, I'm using... Uh, the judgmental mind, we're using the term judgmental mind to indicate this combination of typically some kind of noticing or observation or evaluation linked with reactivity. And we're distinguishing the judgmental mind in that sense from more neutral uh, judgments. Again, in English, we would use the word judgment more more neutrally, I think it's used in quite a few other European languages in very similar ways. Uh, that that the uh, there are uh, judgments we might call neutral. I mentioned some of these earlier today. We could talk about artistic judgments or aesthetic judgments or uh, the judgments of the scientist that this was a solution to the problem. We sometimes would use the word judgment in that sense. Uh, we could talk about legal judgments and so forth. And those would typically be understood more, uh, more neutral. And in particularly in those first examples, they'd be something that we could call a kind of discernment or a kind of um, seeing of something that is the case without reactivity, right, um, in, those, in those kind of examples. And the judgmental mind brings in this aspect of reactivity. It's some kind of typically pushing away or a form of aversion. Although I think there also are forms of judgment, as I mentioned, that can be positive, so-called, grasping grasping onto them. Uh, And so the let's think of some examples of judgment in that sense, in that in that sense of a combination of noticing something, but then having typically a negative pushing away, a reactivity, you know. So um, here here are a few examples. This is from a cartoon called Rhymes with Orange. And these are some examples of judgments. And you can listen if you can see if you can get a sense of what the noticing is along with the reactivity. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to that person. These are six ways of becoming totally miserable is the t- title of the cartoon. Examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. Okay. If, you, if any of this is overly triggering, just breathe and <laughs> do meta for self if you can. Okay. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Okay, some nods of recognition. Okay. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And it shows a woman talking to another woman who says, you look great, and she says, don't patronize me. <laughs> resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. Mm. And so judgments are dramatic and powerful and can be connected with a lot of suffering. There's also very ordinary. This is a cartoon of a man before an elevator and the the caption of the cartoon is the idiot on my shoulder and the person on the shoulder is saying, try pushing the button a few more times, that might make the elevator move faster. (laughs) We know that one, oh my gosh, I chose the wrong line, the wrong checkout line at the supermarket or the wrong line, I don't know, on the toll bridge or whatever, you know? And so we can can judge ourselves. Uh, We can have large and small judgments. And so it's helpful just to get a sense of uh, judgments. What kind of judgments may have arisen just today? Uh, You know, maybe from meditating. Anyone want to volunteer one? Please. Um, keeping holding my posture. I was very hard um, on myself trying to get comfortable. Yeah. So if you could say it in one sentence, what would the judgment be? That um, I'm not very good at seated meditation. That I, I'm not very good at seated meditation. You know, Or... It might be, I'm sleepy, I'm wasting my time, right? And remember, we're looking for that kind of reactivity that makes it a judgment. Uh, as 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 I think I mentioned last night, it's actually not the actual words or the content which make there be a judgment. We can have the same words. I gave the example of me as a teacher. I could say something like, I think you need to develop a little, let's work a little bit more and develop a little more in this area. I could say that with compassion and and interest. I could also say that with a different tone, the exact same words that would be uh, cutting and would show the person that actually there's not that interest or compassion, right? So it's actually interesting. The judgment is marked by reactivity and as human beings we convey that reactivity partly by language but also by tone, by gesture, by body language, by uh, mm, all sorts of ways that we could actually say the exact same same words. Any other any other judgments might have appeared today? Yeah, maybe in one sentence. See if you could say. Uh, um, my practice can't be very uh, skillful if I'm having all these thoughts. Yeah, if I'm having all these thoughts, my practice isn't so skillful and. You know, or, you know, I really should have meditated more in the last six months. Now I'm paying for it. <laughs> you deserve it, you know, or something, something like that, or, you know, uh, I'm so sleepy. Maybe I should just do walking meditation all the time. You know, any others? Yeah. My attention, your attention is so bad, there must be something wrong with you. Yeah, your attention is so bad, something might, must be wrong, you know, um, and, and all of these are more negative and though they're, they're, uh, even though we were saying them with some degree of humor, there's actually some harshness there, isn't there? They might be based, again, it's helpful to see, they, they all are probably based to some degree on some kind of observation, right? It might be I'm not attending so well. We could actually have the observation without going to the judgmental mind. Right? In all of, all of these examples, we could say I'm not attending so well or I, my posture is not so straight. You know, it could lead to other things, but we go, we go to the judgmental mind in that way. Um, and that's crucial. As I mentioned, the nature of the judgmental mind to be a mix of some kind of observation or some kind of noticing or discernment with reactivity points to the way it can be transformed. I think, because again, we can work through in, some, in different ways the reactivity, and then be able to use whatever insight there was for the purposes of skillful action, compassionate action. You know, uh, you know. Ideally, I could as a teacher if I find myself being judgmental, I could try to learn from that and, and say, what can I learn from this? And can I take that insight? Or we could take ourselves as a meditator and actually learn from being judgmental. Um, a lot of the work that I did uh, in a very focused way on the judgmental mind came at a time when I had been working very hard in the world, and I entered a two-month retreat It was actually the same retreat where I first met met Heather. We were doing a two month retreat together and maybe we'll tell some other stories from that retreat. (laughs) We'll see. But uh, on that retreat, I was, uh, uh, at the beginning of the retreat, I was judging myself very harshly for not having gone to more retreats in the last period of time. In other words, I'm not spiritually adequate. And I was comparing myself very harshly to other people who I thought had done it right. Of course, I didn't actually really know that well what they had done. And actually, when I later came to know what they had done, the comparison was off. But (laughs) of course, that doesn't matter so much for the judging mind, does it? All we need is some hypothetical comparison. And there I was. So it was very harsh. It was really um, quite mean-spirited to myself. And it, it actually opened up a period of practicing where uh, I could I began to work with the judgments in a more focused way. I'd actually worked with them in other ways for some time. But that would give an example that if we actually look, well, what is the discernment there that's kind of beneath the surface? It's not so much in the comparison of myself with another person, but we could actually, if we go into that, and say, what's the intelligence of that judgment? Well, maybe it's, I would say it's something like, uh, practice is really important to me, right? We could kind of see that beneath the surface, right? But I I wouldn't have got that for a while, right? So you can see, so this is important, that the judgmental mind is actually not the enemy. It can and often does carry some intelligence or some insight or something of value. And it's not something that we just need to get rid of. Actually, we need to transform judgments rather than get rid of them. If we get rid of the judgmental mind, we get rid of the insights. Okay, so that's an important point here. And we'll be, in different ways, looking to uh, unpack the, the meaning of that. Somewhat more? So what are some other examples of the judgmental mind? I mean, they, they again can be large and small. They can be very, very ordinary. We can be uh, at a light and someone can be on a cell phone. And I can, I can uh, get very judgmental. Uh, they shouldn't be on the cell phone. Oh, oh, it's just people are getting so caught up in this electronic stuff. Uh. You know, And we can, we can get into judgments of the person or of the larger culture or whatever. And we can, um, yeah, we can be very reactive with that way. So we can, they can be small. Uh, they, can, they can be small in that sense and they can be large. They can, there can be self-judgments that actually can take us into depression or despair and can be very, very harsh. Judgments of other people can lead to polarization and even estrangement or the breakdown of relationships, strong judgments in a uh, in the context of uh, nations can lead to conflicts and wars you know? and so it really really is this very very uh, crucial area and it 's something that um, I have found is um, there, even in people who've done a lot of psychological work or a lot of spiritual work, you know, uh, I, I've taught uh, several times, as has Heather, our two-month retreat, where we get some of the most dedicated practitioners who are willing to practice for one month or two months at a time. And uh, I find, I think we find, in a large number of them, that there's work to do with judgments. In a way, that judgmental mind is a kind of barrier in my perception, that makes it harder to go to the depths. And so it's very important work to do on on quite a number of different levels. There's also a very strong uh, cultural dimension, social dimension to judgments, which uh, I think is probably important for all of us. there, the culture can be very, very judgmental in all sorts of ways. Um, and one of, the, one of the forms that this manifests uh, in is in the way that we have a lot of sort of general cultures that come from the mainstream, you know, that um, we tend to internalize. And the judgments are often organized, I think I mentioned this last night, they're often organized in terms of of the different kinds of hierarchies that we have in our society so there can be judgments related to gender or sexual orientation or ethnicity or race or age or religion or what else what else am i not mentioning what yeah socioeconomic status educational level and so forth right and there there are certain uh, kind of mainstream judgments that um, people generally in the bottom part of the hierarchy get coming at them, you know? And pretty thick, you know, pretty thick at times. And, you know, we all, I think, you know, we all, especially in relation to age, will encounter this some. And some people, it's a major, it's a major, Force that one has to grapple with in one's life. You know, one example of this that's, for me, is uh, kind of tragic uh, came from studies that were done in the uh, 1940s and early 1950s of African-American young women, young girls, actually, not women, but girls in Harlem. And there were studies done by uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark, uh, who I think were, we're connected with Brooklyn College. That's that's where my mom went to school, right? I don't know if you knew them, <laughs> but um, and I should say that my mom always says that her favorite topic is always judgments, right? <laughs> right. We'll come back to that maybe, <laughs> and so. Um, so they did this study, and it was, it was a study that's probably well known. Some of you probably know the study. It's called the, the, the Doll Study. Anyone studied this in school? Probably quite a number of you. And this is a study where they showed these young girls, six to nine, a black doll and a white doll. And they asked, what is the good doll? And what is the bad doll? And the girls said that the black doll is bad and the white doll is good. And then they asked them, which doll is like you? And something like half the girls refused to answer. It was like we would say, they, it was cognitive dissonance, we would say. Right? They didn't want to go there. And then half of them did answer. You know, and, so, and when people have done some studies recently in some populations, it's not actually that different. You know? And so what does that show? They have internalized that message in a very deep way, at a young age, and how does that get reversed, right? It's very thick, right? It's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, if you really stay with that. And we can see that on multiple levels with these, these forms, and, there, and so this is another aspect of the judgmental mind. We all internalize some of them. We internalize in a negative way where, where we're on the lower part of the hierarchy And we're often, and sometimes we're unconscious of that, but sometimes we're aware of that, you know? I've had uh, African-American friends, uh, particularly women, who've been in groups where they deal with what they call internalized oppression. And maybe some of you have done something like that, similar to what might be done with women's groups, right? Where one works with the internalized conditioning. And so there it's sometimes clear when it's more oppressive When we're at the upper part of the hierarchy, we internalize the message, but guess what? We don't want to look at it too much, and we're actually fairly oblivious often. We can call the first kind internalized oppression the second kind internalized privilege, right? And we're generally, we don't look at it very much. Do you know that? Do you know that one? And so this is is important to look at. This is a... This gives an example of this. This is from um, Margaret Cho. People know Margaret Cho. Um, kind of an kind of activist comedian. Is that, is that accurate? Okay. So this is, this is her talking about this whole territory. If you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you were a person of size, if you were a person of intelligence, if you were a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. (laughs) And it's gonna be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially women's and gay men's culture. It's all about how you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know when you look in the mirror and you think, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly, don't you know that's not your authentic self? But that is billions upon billions of dollars of advertising, magazines, Movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself, so that you'll take your hard-earned cash and spend it on the mall on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around. shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my usual language in dormant talks, but... Okay, anyway, when you, ha- when you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to call yourself an American... You will hesitate to report a rape. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you are discriminated against because of your race, your sexuality, your size, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution and our revolution is long overdue. So there's that, there's that dimension, very, very strong dimension of judgments that, that is part of the part of the map if we want to work with the judgmental mind. So there are these different sources of judgment. Some of them may come from our family. Some of them may come more directly from the society. Some of them may come from particular experiences we've had in life, right? And uh, so you can sense that the, the working with the judgmental mind is a lot. And if we actually would work with it, it's actually not just personally significant, but it could be very significant on a larger level in terms of society. It's also, as uh, I, I mentioned, a really significant part of spiritual practice that we can really have the judgmental mind often be strong in relation to our spirituality, as with my example. You know, as with some of the examples just of sitting and having the usual first day challenges of being distracted, how many people felt a little distracted at some point? How many uh, felt sleepy? Okay, you might want to keep your hand up. <laughs> okay. how, many, how many felt like there was some wanting going on? I want this. How many felt some aversion? How many felt some doubt? These were the so-called five hindrances or difficult energies. What was your term? Wake up wake-up calls that, that we work with. And these are very, very typical the first day. In fact, whether one's done 30 retreats or one's done zero retreats, it's sort of the territory for everyone. So um, remember that if the judgmental mind starts to arise in relationship to how one's doing. So we have... We have spiritual images of ourselves very strong theme in spirituality. And it's something that, uh, you know, we find in many texts, as I mentioned, you know, in the teachings of Jesus, you have this very, um, very, very simple message to look at your judgmental mind, look at where particularly you're judging others and look into that. And there's also, there's also a very nice line. Let me find this. This is from the Jewish tradition. Greater the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. Greater the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. And very strong theme also in a lot of psychology. There's, there's a line... Uh, from Carl Jung which relates the work of transforming the judgmental mind to self-knowledge he says that which we don't know in ourselves some part of ourselves some aspect of ourselves which we don't know we tend to project outwards onto others where we encounter it as demonic and of course we'd be judging of it so he links the whole aspect of judgment to a lack of self-knowledge to a lack of really knowing ourselves in a deep way. So how do we work with the judgmental mind? How do we transform? it? Last night I gave some beginning indication of the uh, kind of the strategy that we'll have at this retreat, where we'll be primarily working with judgments uh, as inner work. There's also a very important place that we'll touch near the end of the retreat, of working with the judgmental mind when it comes up in the middle of interaction in interpersonal relationships. We we give can give a lot of attention to communication, to speech, to working with conflict and all sorts of so it's this could be you know we could have a three month curriculum here. We could have a three month retreat on judgments, but. Um, we'll start with six days. <laughs> okay, so uh, the starting point, and this was really my own starting point in practice, was just to start being mindful of judgment. So part of the, the initial practice is to start tracking the judgmental mind, start noticing it, use our mindfulness, strengthen our mindfulness, and just start to notice it, it when it occurs, uh, especially here at the retreats. We'll also do some guided meditations where we invite us to bring up to consciousness some of our more habitual judgments. But we also want to start to have that lens on for noticing judgments that retreats. And, and um, it's, it's fascinating to watch the judgmental mind at retreat. I actually, as I mentioned, had some really major learning watching the judgmental mind on a two-month retreat and watching all the small little things. I don't like, you know... Uh, one of the things I really remember is when they were serving tacos one day for lunch, and it was raining in California. It used to rain in the winter <laughs> <laughs> and this was February, and it was raining, and I was outside i don 't know if you remember this meal, but <laughs> <I actually do>. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we were all online outside waiting, and I was finding myself being very judgmental like they because at this point. When, we, when there's a long line on the food line, I know that it's because there's an excess of condiments. <laughs> this is the deep insight that comes from <laughs> working with my own judgmental mind. But, um. <laughs> so, so, I think at that point, I knew there were condiments. I wasn't sure what was being served. It turned out to be tacos. Tacos or a lot of condiments, and I was sitting there outside in the rain saying, why can't they you know, have these arranged so we can move through more quickly? Don't they know we're out in the rain? And so forth, so, you know, this is a, these are the kind of judgments you can notice, or, you know, I don't know, the person next to you comes in late, or, I, don't, I won't mention all the possible things that can form <laughs> judgments because I don't want to give you too many ideas, <laughs> but um, all these things happen, and, And we can track those, we can start noticing the judgments. Just start tracking them here and just give them a little bit of a label. As I mentioned, one can also, when the judgments are there for a little longer time, see what they're like in the body, see what the storyline is. We can explore them in more depth in that way. If we were working uh, in a sustained way, we would also start to be mindful of the patterns of the judgment. What tends to trigger the judgment? When I was doing some important work with judgmental mind, I was going to meetings with uh, the person who was the head of the organization. We had these meetings every two weeks. And I had the experience of often bringing up uh, points and having this leader... Often changed the subject not long after i'd brought up points that were important to me. That was a very neutral way of saying actually what happened wasn 't it? So it gets into our how do you skillfully describe situations yeah, yeah, yeah. without being judgmental? How would I have said that judgmentally you know, with a certain tone, maybe saying he 's a really bad listener, you know, or something like that or you know or that he, jerk. He never listens to me. <laughs> <laughs> that jerk. He never listens to me. Here, he what's he doing? He's so authoritarian, or whatever, whatever it might be, right? And uh, and and I would, in in looking at this experience, I would just notice myself uh, having the experience of very quickly moving to being judgmental. You know, and it would be like something would happen. I'd notice myself being judgmental, and I would. Uh, you know I, would, I, I studied that, and I came to see that it was something like something would happen i didn 't like, and I would just be triggered and go right into what I called what came later to call um, um, emotionally distanced stance of moral superiority <laughs> <laughs> This is a very common strategy <laughs> right that we many of anyone relate to that. <laughs> okay. Very good so uh... and so I would work with I worked with that and started to be able to study it and and actually be in the process and look at that tendency, try to bring the mindfulness so these patterns would recur, no matter what I said or did, they would recur, and I would be in that situation. I would try to uh, look carefully at what was happening, and I found myself able to. Uh, over time, start to slow things down, I started to find, oh, there's that moment where I could feel some reaction there. I started to go to these meetings and do walking meditation on the way at the meetings and try to actually really bring mindfulness to the situation. And I came to see that there was a moment which I, which I when I slowed things down, I could actually feel that doesn't feel good to be uh, not listened to or whatever way I would say it. And I could, when I could actually be in touch with that unpleasant um, aspect of it, I could notice my mind tending to go to judgments, but it wouldn't necessarily go if I, stay, if I could actually tune into the pain. And this actually became an approach that I later used in a meditative way. That example with the tacos, I use practices, which we'll use, I think starting tomorrow, yeah, I think tomorrow, where we actually have a judgment and bring the attention into the body as a way of seeing what's beneath it. And I could actually feel, with the tacos example, oh, I feel impatience. It's not not surprising. And I would actually tune into the impatience, which we could say was the kind of the pain underneath the judgment. And when I tuned into that, the judgment tended to dry up. You know, what, and I over time at this retreat I used that practice every time there was a judgment I tried to tune into the body and see what was there and it took some time to really for this technique to work but over time I came to see that virtually every judgment I looked at there was some pain beneath it that I was typically not aware of that was relatively unconscious you could see in that example with the tacos it was I'm impatient Right? In the example with the boss, it was it's painful not to be listened to or not to be heard, whatever language we use. And I could actually feel that. And when I felt it, it opened up some place of freedom. So I could say to the boss, you know, uh, the point I just made is an important one for me. I'd like us to come back to it. Something non-reactive, non-judgmental that I could, was able to come to when I was actually not reactive because I was actually touching the pain. And we'll look at this quite a bit more, but what I came to see was that the judgmental mind is driven by some kind of unacknowledged or unprocessed pain, which also suggests a way of transforming it, If we can actually touch that pain and work with it in a, with presence in a healing way, there becomes, uh, it's part part of how we would transform it. Now, the, the second main way of transforming the judgment, again, talked about briefly last night, is that if that's true, that the judgments are driven to a certain extent by pain, that means that going into the judgments to a certain extent means to go into difficult territory, can be unpleasant, right can be painful. And so we need quite a lot of uh, resources to do that especially with the difficult ones. But even with the smaller ones, we need resources. And this is where the strategy that, that's really more of an indirect approach to transforming judgments, where we use the heart practices, especially here on this retreat, where we work with loving kindness and we'll tomorrow look at compassion. The next day we'll work with forgiveness, which are amazing practices, which tend to uh, work in quite a few different ways that help us to transform the judgments They give us more balance in our being. Basically, they let us hang out with beautiful states more and more. They let us hang out with the loving kindness or the compassion, with the mindfulness and so forth. And in itself, or joy, and in itself, that's very important as a way of kind of balancing our being you know, and generally that's this is uh, not always understood in practice. we we actually have taken on or we're taking on a lot when we engage in practice. We're taking on looking at our stuff and working through it, right That's a lot. and so we have, we really need to be with a lot of joy and beauty and wonder and really have have that in a way balanced. this is this is a poem uh, from uh, Mary Oliver that really expresses this quality of the need for her. It's, it comes through beauty and being connected with the, um, the trees and the ocean and so forth. But here, listen to her voice because I think you can hear in this poem uh, some judgment. She says, when I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself. A very strong statement, right? I am so distant from the hope of myself. There's sadness and you can imagine what else is there in that line. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say. And you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. And so we practice with these uh, heart practices, the what we sometimes call the the uh, factors of awakening, we develop them. And they help us with balance. And they also, as I mentioned uh, earlier today, they can really be helpful in the moment when the, the heart practices become strong, they serve as antidotes. When we're in a difficult place, when we have what we might call technically a judgment attack, three in the morning or after something difficult happens, we notice the judgmental mind going, if the heart practices are well-developed and where our mindfulness is strong, we notice that tendency. We can go to the heart practices and we can actually cut it off when it's too strong, when it's very strong and we're vulnerable. And we can use it in that way. Very, very wonderful. And then lastly, we, we, we find that uh, as we stay more and more in these awakened qualities, something in our identity shifts towards more towards awakening as we're more and more there. And Heather and I have had this conversation as to how do we transform judgments more through directly working with them or just indirectly shifting the center of gravity? And both are crucial. Both are really crucial. Sometimes we shift that center of gravity and some of the stuff just falls away. You don't have to defeat it. You don't have to work through it. So it's a very important role for, for just being uh, with these different states without, without even thinking about judgments. They actually indirectly transform our sense of ourselves and some of the judgments just fall away. They don't make sense in a, in a deep way. It's quite, quite interesting. It was inter- very interesting when you had that discussion. It was, it was a very, very interesting. Yeah, so we have these, we have these, really these two main ways of transformation. And we'll be working with all of them. uh, Every day, we'll be introducing more of the heart practices. We have these two sessions of heart practice a day. You can bring them in more into your other sittings if you wish. Do 10 minutes of metta at the beginning of every sitting. Wonderful way to do it if you want to strengthen it. Our hope is that by the end of the retreat, everyone who hasn't had a good foundation in loving kindness has one, because we'll be doing it enough. And so you can really use the retreat to continue uh, the momentum after the retreat. So we have the heart practices, and then we have these practices of being mindful of judgments, and we'll introduce other practices in which we start to go beneath the surface. The practice of going into the body that I mentioned, and also practices that start to go beneath the surface of the judgments to work with them and to transform them more and more. And with, with that process then, we become uh, more, ret- more able to notice judgments more quickly. A lot, of, a lot of the difficulty of judgments comes when they sneak up on us, they ambush us, and take us away for like three hours or three days or three months or longer, right? And, we, and so much of the practice, this is where the mindfulness is so crucial, so much of the practice is noticing them as soon as, as, soon as possible and then applying the tools. And they can really, it can really work in a beautiful way uh, when we do that. And as we do that more and more, We can notice the judgments sooner. There's less damage. We can even make a vow not to act when we know we're in the throes of the judgmental mind. Very not to speak or to be careful. Very important. And as we do that more and more, we shift the center of gravity and we start to be able to transform the judgmental mind so we can use that intelligence that's there in the judgments but not so much as a reason to hurt ourselves, but as a, uh, we can use that intelligence to respond skillfully and compassionately. So let me just finish with two, uh, two poems. Uh, the first is by Antonio Machado, and this is really pointing to the gifts of our judgments, that if we work with them, actually we we, we come out of this with the gifts of the intelligence of the judgments and also quite a bit of uh, compassion for ourselves and for others as we work through them. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart and the golden bees were making white honeycombs and sweet honey from my old failures. Making honey out of my old failures. And then the last one is from about a thousand years ago. This is from Hafiz. People know Hafiz? He's kind of Rumi's sidekick. Less, well, <laughs> less well-known sidekick, right? Okay. Uh, how many people know Hafiz? Okay, yeah, very good. Yeah. and Do you know that Rumi is the most popular poet in the US? An Islamic poet? Some people don't fully dressed up <laughs> okay so this is, this is Hafiz okay this is called to build a swing you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare don't mix them <laughs> you have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for God That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands, like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk, rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. (laughs) So. Let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening.